We turn this morning to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll be reading verses 32 to 39. It's kind of awkward starting us beginning to read with but. <laughs> but if you've been following, you would uh, recall last week we were looking at the author's warning to his readers concerning willful, deliberate sins. If we sin willfully, he says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. We considered uh, what all that means. And uh, the writer is shifting now gears, as it were, and he begins in verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. What do we do when we find ourselves slipping and sliding away from our walk with the Lord, when we find ourselves losing our spritual vigor, our spritual zeal, and more so when it seems that there's hardly the will to press on, the will to persevere as we should. What do we do in those times of waning spiritual earnestness? For several weeks, we have been following the author of Hebrews as he addresses his Jewish readers who had come to profess faith in Christ as Savior. Under persecution for their newfound faith in Christ, these professing believers were inclined to renounce their allegiance to Christ and return to the sacrifices, the rituals of the Mosaic Covenant. In fact, some of them had actually fallen into the habit of forsaking the assembling of the saints, verse 25. Indeed, they had come to the place where they were on the verge of casting away their confidence in Christ, verse 35. So throughout the epistle, the author has been laying before them in frightening terms the consequence of such decision. To do so while knowing the truth about the person and work of Christ, he says, he warns, is to sin willfully, is to profane the blood of Christ, more so it is to act with hubris, with 
wanton insult against the Spirit of God. And for such sins, he warns, there can only be fiery, devastating judgment from God. We see that in verses 27 through 31. The writer, we could say, is pastorally firm as he warns of the danger of turning away from Christ. And yet, wisely so, he doesn't stop with stern warnings of divine judgment. Here in verses 32 to 39, he's pastorally sensitive. His tone at this point is not one of censure, but of caring encouragement. For even as he challenges his congregants to keep on keeping on for the Lord, he presents them with motivations for so doing. As I asked earlier on, what do we do in those times of waning spiritual earnestness? How can you and I be motivated to press on in our walk with the Lord when the pressures around us dictate that we do otherwise? Indeed, how many professing believers in our time, in the words of the writer of the Hebrews, are casting away their confidence for one reason or another. Many a believer in our time is discouraged, is weary, what with all the happenings around us, perhaps on account of financial reversal, loss of employment, ill health, dashed hopes, disappointment in some relationship, the dark, depressing spirit of the times, the chaos and confusion of our world. And for the people, the author was addressing the primary cause of their spiritual declension was, as we have been saying, as we have been seeing through this epistle, was persecution. Persecution. And the question is, how did the writer seek to put them back on track? In verses 32 to 39, he provides them with at least four motivating, incentivizing suggestions, encouraging suggestions, suggestions that are designed to spur them on to endurance in their commitment to Christ. And these, I submit to you, are very much applicable to you, to me, whenever we're inclined to waver in our commitment and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. Four things the writer suggests, four motivating considerations, and because we're talking about endurance this morning, I don't want to be on fear and give you all four for you to endure all four this morning. So we're going to just do one. In the first place, suggested by the author of Hebrews, is that we can be motivated to persevere in our faith by calling to mind past experiences of endurance. We can be motivated to persevere in our faith, in our walk with the Lord, by calling to mind past experiences of endurance. We see that in verses 32 to 34. 
Hear him as he dissuades his readers, as he seeks to dissuade his readers from abandoning their confidence in Christ. Verse 32, he says this, but recall the former days. When after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. The former days after you were enlightened. What does this mean? The word enlightened here refers to a saving, life-transforming, understanding of the truths regarding the person and work of Christ as disclosed in the gospel. The addressees of this epistle were enlightened in that they had come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as the perfect sacrifice for their sins. This was the very experience of those of us who are saved. You see, having delivered us from the domain of darkness, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13, God, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, shone in our hearts, giving the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 6. So that whereas we were once darkness, according to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 8, we are now light in the Lord. To be enlightened is to come into a life-transforming understanding of the person and work of Christ as he is disclosed in the gospel. And let me say to those who are not saved, maybe listening by way of Zoom, listening by way of the internet, until one comes into the saving, enlightened knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, one is in a condition of spiritual darkness. So in summoning his readers to recall the former days after they were enlightened, the author is encouraging them to think back. He is encouraging them to go back in time, as it were, to those early days after their conversion to Christ. Now, most, if not all of us, can remember those early days after we became saved. We recall how that those were days of great joy for many of us. Those were days of great joy, great fervency for the Lord. Those were days when we were on fire for the Lord, so to speak. At that time, as far as we can recall, there was no sacrifice that was too great for the Lord. Now, oftentimes we have heard it said as regards our Christian lives that we should not be looking to the past. Rather, we should be pressing on to higher heights, deeper depths of devotion to the Lord. We should not be looking back. In fact, people will quote Philippians chapter 3 where Paul says, forgetting those things which are behind and pressing, reaching for the things that are before. But as we clearly see from our text, the author of Hebrews doesn't think so. He's in fact encouraging his readers to do the very opposite. And we can be sure he's right. In giving this recommendation, writing as he does under the guidance of the Spirit of God. So it's left for us then to consider the question, what value is there in going back in time, in recalling the former days of our conversion? 
What benefits can you and I derive from musing on our early experiences of walking with the Lord? Well, in recalling how the Lord enabled us to have victory over temptations, how he gave us a hunger and thirst for prayer, a hunger and thirst for the word of God. As we recall the evidences of grace in our hearts, we recall how our hearts were moved for the things of God. We desired the fellowship of God's people. We desired the salvation of souls for Christ. As we think back on former days, those memories, beloved, have a way of lifting us, of encouraging us in our moments of doubt, in our moments of defeat, in our moments of discouragement. These memories challenge us to rise up, to move on for the Lord as we think of the fact that the God who was with us in yesteryears, the God who saw us through temptations, the God who gave us victory in our trials is very much the same God who is at work, who is very much available to work in our present circumstances. Indeed, remembering all that we have already endured by God's grace strengthens us, it fortifies us for further endurance of trials and sufferings. Someone has well noted, quote, to remember the dark times when God stood by us and finally made a way of escape is a source of nourishment to continue in faith, end quote. And this is the point the writer is implicitly making here in verses 32 to 34 as a way of setting them back on track in their spiritual groove, as a way of spurring them to steadfastness for the Lord, he exhorts them to go back in time to relive the spiritual energy they had exhibited specifically in the way they had responded to trials, to sufferings, to persecution. And to that end, he outlines in verses 32 to 34 the nature of their sufferings and the manner, the ways in which they dealt with those sufferings. So to get the picture, here it is. Here were Christians who were struggling. Here were Christians who were floundering. They were on the verge of retreating from Christ, going back to Judaism. They were losing their confidence in Christ. The writer has warned them to do that. It's to sin willfully. It's to sin deliberately. If you do that, there's no longer a sacrifice for sins. But he says, listen, come on. Let's go back to the former days. Remember what it was like when you got saved? Do you remember the energy you had? Do you remember how you dealt with trials? Do you remember how God in grace and power came through for you? That's what he's saying here in verses 32 to 34. And beginning in verse 32, here's what he says to them. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. You endured a hard struggle right after you got saved. Trials, sufferings of all kinds came like a torrent upon you. The Greek word that's used here for fight is 
athletes, which relates to our English word athlete and athletics. And suggested here is that behind the fierce opposition, behind the fierce opposition these Christians suffered was a contest of sorts. A contest between good and evil, a contest between the forces of darkness and the light and truth of God. You see, they were up against those who hated the person and work of Christ. We have some idea today of the kind of intense conflict we encounter by people who hate God, who hate the Lord Jesus Christ. These Christians, he said, you had a fierce fight. You were like an athlete in a wrestling contest and you struggled, you, you suffered tremendously at the hand of these Christ-haters, is what he's saying. These were the Judaizers who were clinging to the types, the shadows of the law, and not to the one to whom the types and shadows pointed, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. These were people who were content with the outward external forms of religion, with rituals and sacrifices, ignoring the fact that Christ was the perfect fulfillment of those ceremonies. And because they hated Christ, because they were so steeped into their religiosity, they gave these Christians, these believers who had come, these people who had now come to faith in Christ, their fellow Jews who had now come to faith in Christ, they were giving them a real rough time. They were opposing them left, right, and center. And so on account of such hatred of Christ by the oppressors, these Christians, the writer says, encountered, they encountered, they endured a hard struggle with, notice he pluralizes the word suffering, sufferings. That's important. Because in verses 33 and 34, he outlines for us some of the harrowing experiences which constituted what he describes as the hard struggle with sufferings which these Christians endured, verse 32. So let's look at some of these harrowing experiences that constituted their fight, their struggle with sufferings. Number one, public ridicule. Public ridicule. Verse 33a, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Once again, the word that's used here, the Greek word rendered publicly opposed, exposed, gives us our English word for theater. Theater. So that's suggested here is that under persecution, under severe opposition, these Christians were exposed to public view as in a theater. In other words, their oppressors made of them, as it were, a theater, a spectacle to shame them, to ridicule them. They treated them with disgrace. They disparaged them. They despised them. They insulted them. They treated them with gross indignity publicly. In fact, church history attests to the fact that in later years, Christians were publicly exposed in the theaters 
not only to disgraceful insults and censure, but to ferocious beasts and to the swords of gladiators all to the sheer but sick delight of their oppressors. They would put them in the theater and let loose wild, ferocious beasts on them. Nero, we remember, would at nights set the Christians afire and just have a jolly good time while they provided light as they were burning. That's what those Christians went through. These Christians in the book of Hebrews, they were exposed to public reproach. They were treated with insult, with indignity. In addition to public ridicule, these Christians, notice secondly, were subjected to pressurizing oppression. And there's a reason I describe it as pressurizing oppression. Verse 33b, the word affliction. The word affliction derives from the Greek word thlipsis, and it connotes suffering in the form of trouble, distress, anguish, is what we would call tribulation. Anguish with the added idea of seeing no way out. We talk today about being between a rock and a hard place. In other words, a person is in a situation of anguish, distress. And it's only by the grace of God that they don't go crazy. That's affliction. And the word was actually used in connection with the crushing of grapes. And that gives us some idea of the picture of what suffering, of what affliction is like. What they were experiencing, beloved, was a pressurizing oppression. They were hemmed in with trouble from their oppressors. Public ridicule made a spectacle, a theater, pressurizing oppression. But thirdly, notice participation with other believers in suffering, verses 33b and 34a. Here's what he says, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. In other words, even when they themselves weren't going through it, they would side with their fellow believers who were going through that, those kinds of treatment. For you had compassion on those in prison. And what is interesting here, if you notice, if you read closely, what's interesting here, what's of note, is that the atmosphere of suffering in which these Christians lived did not cause them to become cold and insensitive and withdrawn from the plights and needs of others. These Christians even when they themselves were not immediately going through times of suffering, times of trial, times of persecution, they would come alongside those who were thrown in prison for Christ, and they would stand by them, they would have compassion on them, they would minister to them, no doubt, out of their resources. In love and loyalty to their fellow believers, they reached out, we would say, in practical ways. Lending much-needed help and support to them where they could. No, they weren't ashamed to identify with their suffering brethren, those, especially those thrown in prison, claiming them as their own. They understood something of the kinship, of the affinity they shared together with Christ. And in this way, they gave clear, demonstrative 
evidence of the grace of God that was powerfully at work in them. All these things the writer is saying, listen, you remember those early days? The grace of God was evidently in you even as you went out of your way to minister to those in suffering. Even as you yourselves were facing some of the most difficult, harrowing, suffering you ministered to others, and he says, I wanted to go back in time, think of those days. A fourth area of suffering for these Christians shortly after they came to faith in Christ was property seizure. Property seizure. Look at verse 34. Their property was plundered. All their material possessions, whatever they owned, was confiscated all again because of their faith in Christ. Perhaps corrupt government officials under the banner of persecution just took advantage of them, caused them to lose everything. Perhaps thugs just simply came in their home because they knew how much these Christians were marginalized and so what? Pushed them out of their homes. Now, you and I will not be able to appreciate this much because we live in a society, of course, where we have all the various freedoms we enjoy. We have access to the courts. We talk today about justice, but here's the truth. Many of those Christians in those days knew nothing of personal rights. They were a minority. First of all, they were Jews. And what was happening was this. On top of that, they were Christians. They were hated by their own countrymen. They were hated by the pagans. And because of that, they were pushed to the margins. People took advantage of them. That's the kind of suffering they endured for the sake of Christ. Property seizure. And how did these believers respond to such injustice? They evidently had no access to an attorney as we have today. They didn't attempt to retaliate in any way. Note what the writer observed of them. Here's what he says. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Now, this doesn't mean that they took a stoic attitude that says, grin and bear it, just, just, just deal with it. No, 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 no. They were feeling real pain. They were under real pressure. They were really suffering. And yet in the midst of those sufferings, here's what the writer says. He says, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. They what? Yes, they did that. Think today, for example, of what you value as your material possession, your home that you have worked years to build. Your 401k, all, all the various things that you have in terms of what could be called your property, your goods, your necessary goods. And because of persecution, because of a wave of persecution, the authorities will step in and they will just take advantage of you. The rest of society hates you. And so you end up losing. You're basically on the streets. As, we, as I was saying to someone last week after the service, the Christians in those days, what we have to understand is this, especially where the Jews were concerned who came to faith in Christ. Remember how, how the economy was set up? There were trade guilds. If you, for example, were, let's say, a tent maker, because you were ostracized for your faith in Christ, nobody is going to give you work. You're not going to be able to do business. 
these people were pushed on the fringes so much so that they lost their property. In some cases, their properties were confiscated, were taken away from them. And yet in the midst of that, they took it joyfully. And we ask the question, how so? We'll look at the explanation that's given in the last clause of verse 34. How in the world could they do that, you ask? Think of it. What if you and I were in that situation? The question is, would we have this joyful, calm spirit? And we'd have to say, if we're honest, many of us would begin to become frantic. Yet these Christians, they accepted joyfully the plundering of the property. And the question is, how in the world were they able to do that? Look at the last laws of verse 34. Here it says what? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. He says, listen, you, you came to the understanding that, listen, at the end of the day, those earthly losses are nothing in comparison to what's in store in heaven for you. And this is one of several scriptures which provide for us the motivating, motivating reasons for enduring persecution or suffering of any kind. He says, this, you are able to deal with this kind of pressure. You are able to deal with this kind of suffering, injustice, because you knew that you have a better substance. You have in Christ something that superseded all the richest treasures of this world. And that was one of the motivations he, they, they found. And in Scripture we are saying we have... Various motivations. Yesterday I was looking and I, I found several. We, we learned, for example, what, what will enable us to endure suffering, what motivating consideration will enable us to endure suffering of any kind, persecution. Number one, the eternal reward for enduring such suffering. Take, for example, persecution. Blessed are those, Jesus said, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men persecute you and revile you and shall say all manner of evil against you for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who what? Love him. A second incentive motivation, motivation thought that the word of God gives us to endure suffering is the truth that God works all things together for good to those who love him. Romans chapter 8 verse 28. Thirdly, that God will call our persecutors to judgment, Second Thessalonians 1 verse 6, it is a righteous thing with God to recompense trouble for those who trouble you, suffering, judgment for those who trouble you, Paul says to the Thessalonian Christians. Second Thessalonians 1 verses 4 and 5, that our suffering demonstrates our worthiness of the kingdom of God. He says that you might be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you suffer. He says that's why suffering comes in your life. 
And that's why you can, one of the motivating reasons, he says, the, the fact that Jesus likewise suffered. In fact, he's going to say, the writer's going to say in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, for consider him who endured such hostility against himself from sinners, lest you be weary and faint in your minds. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, think it not strange, beloved, concerning the trial, which is a trial so of you as though something strange has happened to you, but rejoice in as much as you are partakers of the sufferings of Christ. And when we think of the fact that the Word of God teaches that in our sufferings, we're actually suffering with Christ. Paul teaches that in Colossians chapter 1, he says, I fill up in my body the afflictions of Christ. Romans chapter 8 verse 17, we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. And the Word of God also gives this as a motivating consideration for enduring persecution, for enduring suffering, the thought that our fellow believers in the world are likewise suffering. First Peter chapter 5, 9, and 10. And then how about this one? We can endure suffering, persecution, afflictions of any kind, knowing that nothing can effectively separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 35 through 39. But here we see in our text that the motivation to endure earthly losses, the incentive to endure earthly losses with an attitude of joy, comes from this, it stems from the deep conviction, the realization that what we have in Christ is better by far, is way better than all of earth's richest treasures. This was precise of the outlook of these Christians, even as their properties were being plundered. They joyfully accepted such suffering because they understood that compared to their earthly possessions, they had what Peter describes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, an inheritance that was imperishable, incorruptible, and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for them. And such was the security of their heavenly inheritance, which neither thieves could break in and steal, nor moth and rust destroy, Matthew 6, 19 and 20. They were able to joyfully part with their goods, with their property. Because you see, like Moses, they considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of this world, even, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 26, even as they looked for that heavenly Reward. And so we see something of the horrible treatment these Christians endured here in the book of Hebrews. Public ridicule, pressurizing opposition, partnership with fellow believers in suffering, property seizure. And most impressive, most impressive was the fact that in those early days of fierce opposition, of fierce persecution for the name and cause of Christ, 
Here's the point. They did not cower. They did not retreat in their confidence in Christ. By God's grace, they stood their ground. And though our text doesn't state it, it goes without saying that they were able to do that only by the grace of God that was at work in them so that they could testify as the psalmist did in Psalm 121, 124 verses 1 to 4. Remember what the psalmist says? If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, may Israel now say, if it was not the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, when they, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. It was God who gave them that ability to endure those trials. In a pastorally encouraging fashion, as he exhorts them, as he exhorts them to recall those former days after their conversion, the trials, the sufferings that they went through, what he's in effect saying to them is this. He's reminding them of what he had observed as the very impressive manner in which they stood for the Lord. That's, what he, that's really what he's doing, you know. When he says, go back to the former days and remember what you endured, your proper seizure, the, 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 the pressurizing oppression, the public reproach, how they made a spectacle of you and yet you stood firm. What the writer is actually doing there, he's actually saying, look, I know the very impressive manner in which you stood for the Lord. By God's grace, you did it, you can do it again. You need not cower. You need not retreat. The God who was with you then is the same God who can see you through these present challenges. He's saying to them, as it were, you're floundering and growing weary in your walk with the Lord. But I remember all that you endured. I remember all that you endured for the sake of Christ. All the sufferings that came upon you shortly after you became saved. And be assured the Lord who saw you through will again, can again, work and work mightily on your behalf. So in essence, the call of the writer is for his readers to recapture by way of memory the mighty power of God. The grace of God that... Enable them to triumph, and in this way, they'll be able to endure present trials and sufferings for the sake of Christ. What's the point here this morning? The point here this morning, my friends, is this. Whenever you and I feel that we are losing our, our spiritual fire, we are sliding, we are becoming discouraged, we can hardly see any hope, any, any motivation to press on for the Lord, we need to go back in time and recall what God did in our lives when we got saved. And from that, we ought to take the lesson, look, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because he enabled us to endure then, we can, by his grace, endure now. In closing, let me suggest to you by way of application some lessons from this passage. And these lessons have a bearing on the whole matter of 
endurance, motivations for endurance. And the first thing we see from this passage is that suffering may come in the wake of conversion. Suffering may come in the wake of conversion. Look at verse 32. Once again, notice when did these, when did these Christians suffer the way they did? It was shortly after they were enlightened, the early days of their conversion. When it came to Christ, he said, you had a hard struggle with sufferings. And this should not be deemed surprising. It should not be deemed strange. According to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, the truth of the matter is, once we have been rescued from the dominion of darkness, we are now on the Lord's side. And because we are on the Lord's side, the world hates Christ and because the world hates Christ, the world will necessarily hate us, and hence suffering is inevitable. Suffering often comes in the wake of conversion. Secondly, suffering need not insensitize us to the plight of others. One of the tendencies of human nature, especially when times are rough, when times are really rough, when one is going through suffering, is to become insulated. My needs first. This was not the case with these Christians. Notice they became partners with those who were suffering. They had compassion on them. They went out of themselves by the grace of God. And this is one of the marks of grace in a true believer in Christ. A true believer in Christ will not be insulated against the needs of others, but will reach out, will enter into their pain, their sorrows as it were. And then here's a third lesson, a final lesson we learned this morning. It is this, that suffering clarifies our perspectives and priorities. Suffering clarifies our perspectives and priorities. These believers joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Why? Because they knew they had a better possession and an abiding one. Suffering, here's the point, suffering has a way of making Christ shine with greater beauty, shine with greater worth than all the treasures of this world. That is why the Apostle Paul, strangely, could say, listen, I want to know the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. And in the same breath, he says this, he says, I want to know Christ, and to this end, I count everything else but rubbish that I may gain Christ, that I may know him. Suffering as this way, beloved, of changing of transforming our outlook on material possessions we come to see the beauty the worth in christ the worth that is way above all of earth's treasures that was why moses was able to turn his back on the riches of egypt why hebrews eleven twenty six. he had respect to the recompense of the reward where are you this morning discouraged weary perhaps on the verge of throwing in the towel, hear the writer this morning, but recall the former days after you were enlightened. Recall when you got saved. Recall how God worked. The psalmist does the same thing in Psalm 77, in the midst of trouble, in the midst of present crisis. Here's what he says. I will remember the days of old. I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. May God grant that we might find grace to stand for him, especially in these days, that we would not cower, we would not retreat, but that we would take our stand for him, for his name's sake. Amen.